reading from God's word from 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was about nine foot nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine camp, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Early in the morning, David left the flock in care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. 
David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out and fight this Philistine. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, The Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing from health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. The word of the Lord. 
So I wish we could do a Bible study of this passage. I'd much rather discuss it with you than teach it. Uh, but my question to you, and you can reflect on this, is where do you see faith in God and in David's life? Where do you see faith in God in David's life? You're probably asking how this ties in, though, with the topic of the talk, which is faith for God's work on campus or something like that. I can't remember exactly what we said. So let me tell you a story. Some of you have heard this before. Um, but it was 2004, and I'd been on the UW campus for five years. And I'd seen some amazing things happen, but the ministry wasn't going so well. So we'd started off with 40 students. We'd grown to 120. We started a second chapter with Greek students. And by that time, we were back down to, I don't know, 20 students again. And I was really struggling with this, discouraged by what was happening and desperately looking to God for answers. Why is it so hard for ministry on this campus? Why are students so resistant to the gospel? And, and why was I seeing students that seemed to have faith in God fall away from him and even begin to deny their faith? So we were invited to go to a conference uh, out in uh, Portland, Oregon with some friends of ours that we did inner city ministry with. And part of that was a week, the weekend though, we, we were at, back at their church and Randy Clark, who's kind of this prophetic evangelist who started this ministry called Global Awakening, had gone on, had taken a bunch of them on a trip to South America. They'd seen lots of people healed, a number of people come to the Lord and they were excited. So they invited Randy to come back with them to Hood River, Oregon. Hood River's kind of a, I can only describe it as kind of like a, uh, like a vacation spot for outdoor sports. It's known as the, uh, the uh, windsurfing capital of, of the world, right? It's amazing. Wind, windsurfing, mountain biking, uh, just all these different things you can do there but very outdoors-ish and, and right on the foothills of Mount Hood. Uh, a gorgeous place, but not, not very Christian. You know, mostly post-Christian people who are other religions or even none, which is kind of the new category for a person who has no faith and is a part of no religion or, or organized religious group. Um, so they, Randy came and he brought a student with him from, at the time he was partnering with Bethel and Reading. Um, and they began, and all they did over the course of three days was share stories about what God would do. And then afterwards they would, they would pray and they would ask the Lord what he wanted to do. And they would, they would call prophetic words of healing that God wanted to perform. And we saw, we saw healing, like verified healings of people, because our friends are both physicians and they could say, this is true. A man who was healed from, um, uh, severe, uh, lung issues. They'd known him and he was miraculously healed. There were just a number of things, a woman who was delivered, another person who came to the Lord and other things like that. And at the end of the conference, they had us all line up and Randy went and he prayed for each person. So I, I hadn't been to a conference like this before in that sense and was a little nervous because everyone he prayed for fell down on the ground. And I, someone had prayed for me once like that and tried to push me down. I was like, you're not pushing me down. That's not going to happen. This has got to be real. So Randy comes to me. I'm a little bit anxious and he looks at me. I got no time to even say anything because he's just laying his hands praying. I said, 40,000 college students. And he said, I don't remember what he said, because he put his hand on my head, felt this, I don't know what, the presence of God, electricity, and I, my, my muscles failed me, and I fell over backwards. When I hit the ground, um, I was no longer in California uh, or in uh, Oregon. I was actually on campus at the UW. I was on Library Mall. And as I was there, I was, I was right in the middle. I looked up, and looking down at me were two giants. It was kind of like that negative effect. They were dark, and I knew they were spirits. And I knew they were powers and I knew they were significant to what was going on on campus. And then I woke up and at that moment I realized I needed to find out what these giants were. 
in order to know how we could help ministry move forward on campus. Now, there are a lot of giants on campus, or you could call them giants of different kinds. We could call them spirits. The two that I encountered were bigger. There were more ones that had greater authority, but there's a lot of things going on with college students. And, And I see it every generation, it changes. And currently the generation is called Gen Z. My children are Gen Z and some of the other younger ones here are as well. And so here's some facts about Gen Z that that are both potential giant obstacles, but also possibly opportunities, right, for God. So first of all, Gen Z is the most depression anxious of any generation in the past 100 years. Since the silent generation, they've been tracking these things, and there are more students depressed and anxious, more people in this generation than any before. About a third of all um, Gen Z are being treated for anxiety or depression on some form of medication. And beyond that, they know that um, at least 60 to 70% are somewhat or significantly stressed out about what's going on around them and about the future of our nation, about their future as well. So they are, they are, they're anxious and depressed because their world is a mess. You know, and the things that increase their, um, their anxiety more than any other generation is political division, mass shootings, suicide rate, climbs, climate change, deportation of immigrants, widespread sexual harassment, and racial violence. Those things all increase their anxiety levels more than any other generation. Um, Also, uh, during COVID, obviously, those things have gotten worse. In fact, I heard some statistics, and this I actually saw the other day, that between, um, between the spring of last year and December, anxiety and depression had risen fourfold for every single adult in the country. That was from, a, from 10% to over 40% of the population was struggling with anxiety and depression because of what was going on. And so a group like Gen Z is going to experience that even more. Um, at one point I figured out um, that maybe every single student on campus was struggling with some level of anxiety and depression because of, uh, because of COVID. And because of the second thing, this group is already extremely disconnected and isolated right? Um, my daughter's giving me evil eyes over there. So, um, so uh, you know, they are more electronically connected than any generation before them, yet they are more isolated and lonely than ever before. Because I would say, because screens have replaced a lot of what we used to do face-to-face. And, and I've been learning, this is fascinating, but we weren't, we weren't created to connect via text that's a convenient way. We were created to connect by looking into each other's eyes, friends and family members, so you could see how much you care about one another and you could share that love. And that actually is what brings joy into our lives. Looking into someone's eyes, even looking into Jesus' eyes brings joy because it says, when you're with a friend or a family member, I love you and I want to be with you. And, and screens don't, can't replace that. We all find that. And Zoom is exhausting. You can be with a bunch of friends on Zoom and it's not the same as being face-to-face with them. Not just the fact that you're missing some of the body language and you tend to step on each other like you would in a phone call, but even more because you can't really look into each other's eyes because everybody's got their, <laughs> their, their Zoom picture in a different part of the screen and they're not looking directly at the camera, you know? That's part of it. But there's a spiritual connection that gets lost in translation, right? Um, and yet screens and social media continue to be an enormous part of Gen Z's lives. For more than half of them, at least 55% say it provides a feeling of support. But the flip side is that 
50% of them feel judged. And nearly two in five or 38% feel bad about themselves as a result of social media use. So in fact, social, like Scientific America in July of last year uh, did some surveys and, they, and this is what they said. 79% of Gen Z respondents feel, report feeling lonely and a significantly greater portion than other generations. Uh, deep friendships are rare, especially among our youth. So isolation is just getting worse. This is a, one of the most isolated generations of, of any before and even more in COVID. And finally, they're a generation that's losing their faith. If you look at the statistics again across generations, you find that there are less in Gen Z than any other generation before that are actually participating in church. And, are, and there's more that are in the category of agnostic or atheist or none. No interest, no connection whatsoever. Um, there is hope, and I'll share more about that next month. This is about faith, all right? And I wanted to give you a, a small picture of some of the things that Gen Z are facing. You know, again, there is a book called Loss in Translation. It was published in 2011, so it's already 11 years old, right? It blamed, it blamed at the time, and this is so true, it blamed the hardships of today's college-age adults on specific social trends. One of these, uh, these trends is the drastic growth of higher ed and increased competitiveness in college admissions. Students see that all the time. Another is the influence of mass communication technology, social media, and advertising. And other topics included substance abuse, sexual freedom, economic instability, consumerism. Um, and one of the general themes, themes was that uh, young adults lack direction and moral coherency. And, they are, and, and because of that, they're more likely to disengage from the world around them. This is the most depressed, isolated, anxious, disconnected, uh, and faithless generation of any sense. It's not their fault, right? It's ours. Uh, creating a society that wasn't able to really support and help them or understand them or listen well enough. And that's all part of this process. Understanding them is key. Helping them out where they're at. Um, and yet we're surrounded by Gen Z college students right here. Now we don't live in this neighborhood, but this is where our church is at, right? Um, and if you go like across the street, you're in South Campus. South Campus, it, it's bordered by, you go all the way down Regent to, to Randall Monroe, go Randall Monroe up to University, all the way to University, take University back here to Park and come down Park. That, that area and there are, there are thousands of students that live in these few blocks, right? And then just over here, two blocks over here, well, two, two buildings over is Smith Dorm, right? And then there are other ones, Og and, and Celery and Witty. And in those dorms live um, about 3,500 freshman college students, right? So we're surrounded by these Gen Z students, um, that, and many of them are intelligent Smart kids looking for answers, but they're not finding it in Jesus. Some of them grew up in the church, and many of them are walking away from God once they come to a place like the UW-Madison. So I share that because that's a great intro to explain why I picked David and Goliath, right? There are these giants that they're facing, um, and in fact, we are called to actually stand against. And so I wanted to look at three things I saw in David's life that I think would be helpful for us as we think about having faith in God's desire and, and, uh, and plan to reach the, the UW-Madison. Um, so, you know, you know, again, you know, I don't have to go into a lot of details, but I was going to show pictures, uh, but you know, uh, Goliath was a huge guy. There's controversy over whether he was six foot nine or nine foot nine, 
but regardless, he was, gi- he was a giant, right, for that time. David was probably like 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. He was average height. He was a little taller. He was like 5'6", or 5'7". Not a tall guy in today's standards at any means. I don't know if any of you have seen the, um, uh, the TV series Game of Thrones, and the, there's an actor called the Mount, uh, he's, his title is called The Mountain. This guy is a professional, um, like, strong man. He's 6'7", he weighs 420 pounds, and he can deadlift uh, 1,100 pounds. So, and, he, and, he, and you compare him, even compared to, like, a, 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 like a, a, a football player, like, he went and he spent some time with the Vikings, just for fun. He, he, was, he looked like a giant. They looked like little kids almost compared to this guy, you know, like, and it's crazy when you think about it. that's what Goliath was to these, but it was more like um, if you put a man who was like five, six next to him, it was it's you can't even igno- just describe the difference in terms of size. It's like me standing with a little kid beside me that yet that kid is a full grown man, you know, and this is what this is what the um, the army of Israel faced when they were looking at uh, at Goliath. Um, and so every day he would come out and he would taunt them come and fight me. And if you win, we'll serve you. And if we, if we win, you serve us, right? That's basically what it was. What I think, man, if, if we win, we'll kill all of you. And if you win, we'll kill, right? You can kill all of us. That's kind of how it meant. Uh, and it wasn't atypical to have that kind of challenge happen in this setting. But, but can you imagine? I mean, any one soldier would think this is just unfair. This is like, this is like me um, and I love bike riding, Matt and Sue know that. Me trying to ride bike ride in a race against a professional bike rider, you know, in my current state, which isn't great. I mean, I'd be lucky if I can average 15 miles per hour uh, over a 20-mile ro- ride, and these guys probably do 35, right? And that's kind of the difference we're, we're seeing between these two. But even more, what would happen is um, as the Goliath would come forward and taunt them, fear would overwhelm the, all the men in Israel and all the army would run. They just run because they were afraid. But David, David was different. David stood up to the rest and he said, who is this unclean, right, um, person? Uh, who is this man who stands, uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? So what is it that made David courageous? Any thoughts? Go ahead. His youth? Yeah, there's something of that in there too. I see that all the time when youth just feel like they're indestructible. What do you think, Paul? His reliance on God? Yeah, Matt? Past experience. Past experience. That's exactly what I was going to say. So, see, his faith is not based on wishful thinking, right? His faith isn't based on some imagination that he has. His faith is based on practical experience. And he even says it, right? He said in the past, the Lord... Um, would rescue me, right? When, when, I, when I killed both lion and bear, um, the Lord would rescue me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. He'd experienced that firsthand being a shepherd, coming face to face with these wild animals who would attack, and he experienced the, the power of God, right? And the ability was able to overcome them. Um, and we see that throughout this. Experiences uh, of God's faithfulness are what we should be facing our facing our, our basing our faith in. Um, Even more, let me explain this. Uh, David um, was described by God as a man after his own heart, right? And so we think about that. It's definitely related to the intimate relationship he had with Jesus, which was very much unlike other people's. 
But even more, what, what it was connected to was, and this is in Acts 13.22, this is a quote. He said, I, um, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, because he will do everything I want him to do. David wasn't afraid to be obedient to what God told him to do, even if it was a crazy thing like fight this giant, because, because he'd seen God's faithfulness in the past, and he believed this. This is what he believed that, that no one else did, that God was good with his promises, all right? In fact, the way you could put this is that God was Elamet, right? What does that mean? I could ask Terry. The truth. Well, yeah, right. Dave knows, right? He was, he was, he was the God of truth, right? And even more, that means when he made a promise, he would keep it, right? There were, he didn't lie to people. He would tell them the truth. And so that same Emet, which means truth, also means faithfulness. God was a faithful God. Anything he says is true, and he will follow through with it. And David believed that, but no one else did. So they ran. They were afraid. In fact, the first time you see them running from giants is when they, was when the, uh, the, the first generation who was freed from slavery comes into the promised land shortly after getting out of Egypt. They get this report of the, of the wonderful fruitfulness of the country, but the huge giants, and they start to whine and moan and say, why have you led us here in order to die? And why does God get angry with them? Because they were calling him a liar. You're a liar. How could you do this to us, you traitor, right? And God isn't that kind of God, right? He's Elamad. He's the God of truth. He keeps his promises. Of course he was enraged by that. And so here's something about David. David's faith in God was based on his past experience, but also his knowledge and understanding that God was a God who kept his word. And the word and the promise he had was that this land that, that Goliath was on was not Goliath or the Philistines that belonged to the Israelites, right? So all he needed to do was trust in God and God would provide a way forward. God would show him victory. So what about us as a church? I, this is going to take a little longer. I may have to fly through some of this. But I, this is the most important point, I think. Um, God, how has God been faithful to us in reaching the campus in the past? You can probably all think maybe some of you were college students and came to the Lord through FCBC or maybe not through FCBC, but on campus here at the UW-Madison. Maybe you've seen students come to the Lord through this, the ministry of this church in the past. The prayer room in 2005, which I'll mention later, is a, is a great example of that and other things that have happened here as well. There are many examples of ways that God has shown himself a faithful in the past. And we can have trust and have faith that God's desire is, in, is to reach South Campus and to reach the Southeast Storms as well and to use us to do it. We're part of it, not the whole solution. Blackhawk and the other churches, Geneva, are a part of that as well. But God can and use us if we're faithful and we trust in him, right? We place our faith in the way we've seen God work in the past. Oh. Well, let me go on. So the second thing I noticed is, is that, um, and I'll, I'll just say it, we can, we can have faith that God will provide all that we need or that he already has. Right? So David's going to go against the giant. Saul says, okay, I give you my blessing. You seem to have enough, uh, you know, uh, gone us to do this, right? And, uh, and, and he gives him his, his sword and his, and, his, uh, and his helmet and his, uh, his, tar and his, his uh, armor. And, he's, and David's like, I can't wear this. It isn't made for me. You know, I'm uncomfortable and I don't know this. And instead he, he says, what I, what I do know, what I'm faithful in is, well, God has used me in the past in this way, so I'll take what I know. I take my staff and I'll take my sling, right? 
and, and I'll trust that God will provide and use th- and work through those things. Uh, you know, and there's wisdom in this, right? It would have been a huge mistake for him to pick up a sword. Not that he didn't know how to use a sword, but it wasn't his. And to go against Goliath with a sword, which was some finesse and a lot of strength, would have been a huge mistake for anybody. This guy was probably two or three times stronger than David easily. Um, and the last thing David wanted to do was to close the distance to the place where Goliath could either grab him or use his spear or sword against him. Then David was done. So there was some wisdom in this, but also the wisdom too in knowing the fa- he could have faith and trust in God that God had already provided all that he needed. He had it with him, right? And I, and I think for us, like if I was to relate this to us, often we look around and say, well, either I myself am not enough, or we look at our church and some of the changes recently in us and we say there aren't enough of us, right? We can't impact this campus. We can't do anything. And yet, if we were like David, we would instead look around us and say, what is it about us that God has given us already? What tools, what resources, if you want to use what weapons has God given us that we can use, right? And what would you say some of those are? The gospel, prayer, right? Yeah, experience, love for the campus. There's just a lot of things that are there we just don't think of. You know, I think we compare ourselves, like if David had compared himself to Saul and said he had to be like Saul, it would have been all over. And if we compare ourselves to Blackhawk and say we have to be like Blackhawk, we're in big trouble in order to reach college students. We can't do that. We just have to be FCBC, right? What are the gifts God has given us? What are the resources we have? And then, be, and then trust, have faith that God has given us what we need in order to do what he's called us to, in order to reach the students that he wants us to reach and love, right? So, you know, then we can have, um, then we can have the same kind of courage that David had. Uh, and then finally, I, I would say the last thing is, I think um, David realized that it was about God and not him, right? I mean, it wasn't for his glory, Although, I, interestingly enough, it did bring glory to David. It was for God's glory. And everything he said was to that level. When, he, when he's confronted with it by the Philistine, by, he says, uh, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the king of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's not about me. It's about God, right? You defied him. This day, the Lord, not me, will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head because God's going to give me the power, right? This very day, I'll give your car- the carcasses of the... Philistine army and the, uh, to the birds and the wild animals, which is kind of taunting what he just said to him. Um, and the whole world, this is it, the whole world will know that God, there's a God in Israel. Right? It wasn't for his glory, it was for God. Through David, God was going to be glorified. And that's what God wanted. It's a man after my own heart. Not only will he do what I, what I want him to do, he'll do it for my glory and not his own. Right? And, and, and so David, willing to risk his own life, but trusting in God's faithfulness in the past, recognizing he had everything he was doing, did it for God's glory. And what happens? He slays the giant, right? And when he slays the giant, um, and I didn't read, we didn't read this part, long, long story. Uh, it, everyone's excited. The Philistines are scared. They start running. There's lights chase after them, kill most of them. That's kind of how it went back then, right? Um, and, da- and God is glorified and even more, David is elevated. David is elevated, he, he doesn't change who he is. He continues to be the same person. And then after that, everything he does is blessed. If they, if they send him out to do something, David does it better than anybody else. You know? And he gets noticed. And you know why? Because God wanted the world to know that David was his anointed. And I, I think the same is true for us, right? If we're willing to take the risks that God has places before us, 
to trust in him and do it for his glory, then we can expect that God will be glorified. And, and, and some people will recognize us and see us in a different light. Now, that's not why we should do it, right? There's mixed motives. I think we have to recognize those. That's kind of one of those, like, like reverse psychology kind of things. Like, if I do this, then, you know, no, it doesn't work like that. Um, it, we have to make sure that our motives, our motives are good and pure or deal with the ones that aren't. And in that process, what happens is we'll actually begin to see this church actually become who God created us to be. Uh, and I'm not talking about, it, it can include any of our neighborhood, but right now I'm just talking about the thousands of students that surround us. I mean, I'd love to see more students here. I think we all would, right? And we'd love to be able to serve and we have to start asking God, God, and this is where we'll go next week. God, what doors are you opening? What opportunities are you bringing that you want us to bring to, in hope to move forward in faith to see you work and to bring new life, right? And, to be, and so your name can be glorified. And I believe if that happens, we'll actually begin to see the very things we long for and desire to see happen. There's a great story. Um, a, a donor of mine made copies of this because he, uh, he was excited about it. It's about the, um, some stories from the life of David Howard. No, David Howard. Anyway, David Howard, did he, I don't know if he went here ever, but David was, uh, he, he led missions, uh, missions conference and missions for InterVarsity for years. And uh, he came to speak at the UW-Madison here. It was probably um, in the, uh, oh, it was probably in the um, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and he said after a meeting, uh, some students came to talk with him. And uh, he noticed that there was a guy who was really nervous, uh, kind of shaking. And uh, this guy, Gerald, was in his real name. He, he came to him and he started talking to him. He said, look, I'm a member of a coven of witches who meet regularly to practice their witchcraft. He showed me some scars, told me about the rituals he'd been through. He said um, that at midnight, he would pray to Lucifer who would appear to him. And he said that if other members of the coven knew that he was telling him these things, uh, that David, these things, he would be killed. And as he spoke, he was perspiring and shaking and clenching his fists and tightening his lips, just really nervous. And finally, he said, is it possible for me to be delivered from this blood covenant that I made with Satan? I belong to Satan, but I want to know if I can be free. There's a giant, right? So, and, um, and he said, I knew, that the I knew the answer perfectly well. I've been a Christian since the age of 10. And so it was easy for me to say the answer was, of course, you can be delivered. But then he said to me, is it possible you can do this right now? <laughs> and suddenly my faith was placed squarely on the table. Like, did I really believe God could deliver Gerald right now? I knew that God could deliver him, but would God deliver him right now and through me? And so taking my cue from Nehemiah, when the king asked him a pointed question, I prayed to the God of heaven and I, and I answered, this is in Nehemiah 2, he said, I told Gerald that the only thing more powerful than his blood covenant with Satan was the blood of Jesus, who could deliver him and cleanse him. And he said, I said to him, can you do this for me? Oh, he said to me, can you do this for me? And I answered, no, you have to do this for yourself. And so he said, what do I have to do? He said, we well, have to recognize and confess your sins and ask God to forgive and deliver you. But I know I don't, but he said, I don't know how to pray. And, and then I said, well, you just told me you pray to Lucifer right now. Why don't you just pray to God instead? <laughs> so he began to pray and almost instantly he was thrown on the floor, grabbing his stomach and crying out in agony and writhing. And I stepped over him and laid my hands on him, claiming the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't recall how long the struggle lasted. It seemed like ages. But soon Gerald relaxed, rose to his feet with a big smile and, and turned to his girlfriend and said, wow, this is real. This really happened. 
And I knew he'd been forgiven, delivered, and it showed on his face and in his body language. So, yeah, I mean, I actually would love some more like obvious things like that that would hit us squarely in the face. Maybe we need to begin to pray for those kinds of challenges that we would really trust in the Lord and see him work. Um, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm in Portland. I have this, or Hood River, I have this crazy encounter. Um, and these two spirits, uh, are these, and I, they're giants. And I know they're significant. And so I come back to the campus. Who do I talk to? Who do I con- talk to? And everybody says, talk to Dave Conkle. So Dave Conkle at the time was doing a spiritual survey of Madison. So I sit down with him over coffee and I shared what happened. He goes, man, this is absolutely amazing because the Lord just revealed to me two two territorial spirits or giants on the UW campus that are enemies of God. So he said, this is the first one. He said, the first one is the spirit of pride. It keeps people from humbling themselves before the before the Lord and receiving his grace and, and mercy and forgiveness. It says, I don't need you. I'm all right. I've got everything I need. I'm smarter than you are. Um, you don't even exist, right? It's the same one I encountered. I've encountered personally many times um, where students have said to me, what you believe is ridiculous, right? Um, and, 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 and the answer to the spirit of pride is what? Humility. Yeah, a spirit of humility, right? So 2 Chronicles 7.14, humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. Right? That's what he says. Then I will hear your prayer and heal your land. Um, you know, and I, and I really think about this. This prayer is actually uh, a part of our DNA as this church is part of how God made us. Right? Um, and, 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 and it's not only though if we, if we pray, we have to act humbly and we have to repent. Um, it's the antithesis of what... Um, uh, David was seen in Goliath, but it was exactly that. Even though David, uh, this wasn't, isn't a humility that was like, oh, woe is me. But it was a humility that would say, I trust in the strength of God like David, right? And the second, he said, is a party spirit or a spirit of division, partisan spirit that divides and separates. And uh, it's a spirit that's, that, that, that wants to split people up. It's a spirit that wants, and I've had this happen before, pr- doing prayer walks on campus with students. And they say, it's, it feels like everyone's shouting at everyone else and no one's listening. Right? We all have our perspective. We all think we're right. I don't want to hear what you have to say. It's irrelevant. Right? And it's that kind of attitude that happens. Um, and we've seen it. We've seen it even more and more in our, in our political Reality more late, but it happens in all spheres. It happens in churches too, right? Um, and how do you address a spirit of division with a spirit of unity, right? Again, it's humility has to be the first step and then unity is the second. Um, you know, maybe it's reconciliation as well. Um, and you need, that's one way you need to, to address it. And one of the ways you do that, and this is wise, David didn't pick up a sword because he knew it was the favorite weapon of the enemy, right? So you don't use guns or bombs or tanks to come against people you disagree with. You don't use lies, blaming, scapegoating, dehumanizing, ad hominem attacks um, for pe- with people we don't agree with who are opposed to, even though um, even those who have taken up weapons against us and are trying to hurt us, right, the enemy. Instead, we respond in love, right? Maybe that's the spirit, a spirit of love, to love one another, to love our enemies. Um, and I, we need to be people who do more than agree to disagree. We need to be a people of peace who take this peace to the world, each other. So I'm sharing this with you because, because this happened in 2005. This was, this was the six months after our encounter in Portland 
We're doing a prayer room here, totally unexpected in this, in FCBC. We weren't even a part of the church at the time. We were visiting. FCBC opens our pace and we do this, we do this prayer room in it. And what does it do? We're praying humbly, repenting together, and we're doing it united. Over 40 different organizations, churches and campus groups, even campus groups, when I shared with them, I came, I came to them a month before I said, I'm going to do this crazy thing. I'm going to pray for 40 days, 24-7. Will you join us? Crew and NASBO said, no, we don't have time. In the middle of the, of the prayer time, they came back to me and said, we're really sorry. This was of God. I, you know, I mean, I didn't expect them. I didn't, you didn't have to apologize. But there, was, but there was first a spirit of humility, and then there was a spirit of unity, right? I believe that was one part of it. Now, this, these aren't giants that we can just sling a stone and kill instantly. Like, we have to, we have to constantly come against them. Because their base isn't just, is a, is, a, is a belief system that's set up, that's kind of enrooted in all the people, the fa- a lot of the faculty and administration and the students that go here, right? And you can't, you can't win a battle by, by just knocking one of them off. You, you have to, somehow that, that mindset needs to be changed in, in everyone in order for that foundation or the base of that spirit to be disrupted enough for you to be able to cast it out and say, go, you no longer belong here. But, but this prayer and part of who we are is a space to actually encourage prayer and unity in the body as a way forward in order to have faith. And we can talk, we'll talk more about that moving forward as we look um, towards reaching the campus in the future. But I wanted to give you uh, uh, something to hold on to. I'm sorry, we're gonna go a little longer today. We're gonna have a little bit of a prayer response. But the reason is, is we, is we don't just need to talk about it, we need to live this out. And, and, and for, for, millennial, for millennials, for Gen Z, sorry, for Gen Z, they don't want to hear you talk about it, they want to see you do it. They want to see you li- like really put it into practice. Like if you really care about these things, show me, right? And, and, and that's what we want to do today. In some way, we want to begin. Um, and I've asked uh, both, both um, my wife and Nicole Wetzel both said to me, we want to talk about some of the violence that's been happening in our country lately and pray about it. And so I said, well, you talk with each other and I'll let you do it at the end of the service. All right. So they're going to be our prayer response for today. So why don't you guys co- go ahead and come up and you're going to have to share your share a mic. They're both vaccinated. So I know we're breaking rules here a little, but I'm going to share a lament that was written by Ann Voskamp, and she wrote it on Thursday morning after waking up and hearing the news of Adam Toledo, who was killed and unarmed at the hands of police officers. He was, he was 13 years old. And part of laments are to help us listen and hear. So I don't, I want you to put on your person hat, I guess, today. Your dad, your mom, your sister, your brother, your aunt, your uncle hat. And listen to these words. Lament of the unarmed. Hands up to heaven begging God in all this ungodly dark to taser stun the resistant awake, 
to see that unless we be, bear arms like Christ reaching out to grieve with the bereaved, to believe the profiled and misperceived, to relieve the weight of injustice so all the aggrieved can just finally breathe free, it is us who leave God unarmed and dead in the streets. And to close, she put, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And that's from Teresa of Avila. As we are lamenting and mourning the violence of this past week and this past year and these past many years, um, we remember that Jesus said, those who draw the sword will die by the sword. And Jesus calls us to seek a different way. And we face the fact that when we say it's not that bad, that as those of us who have been insulated from violence tend to say, when we say that, then nothing ever changes. Instead, we humble ourselves. We need to repent and humble ourselves and seek the Lord's face. So pray with me, if you will, in the manner of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, I am a violent person, and I live among a violent people. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I am a racist person. And I live among a racist people. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us and purify us, Lord, so that we can follow you in the way of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, we break agreement with the spirit that I call divide and conquer. We pledge our allegiance to Holy Spirit, who unifies and gives life. Lord, I ask that you give grace to each one of us to see where we have acted in agreement with division and violence to break that agreement and walk in the way of obedience to Jesus. Give us grace, Lord, to recognize each one of us in our own lives how we have um, acted in the ways of the spirit of divide and conquer. Give us grace to see that, Lord, so that we can repent, turn away, and instead, walk in the ways of Jesus, our Savior. In his name, we start this journey. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you walk with us and show us the way.
Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if, uh, as we um, learn to have more faith and trust in God, in, um, and he calls us to, you know, stand up and be people of peace, not just in terms of how we relate to each other, but standing for as well, that he would give us eyes um, to be able to see uh, that the real enemy is in flesh and blood, right? Um, and that in some ways, um, everyone in this situation is a victim, um, and to have mercy on those people and to pray for God's grace in their lives um, and to find a, find a way forward and to allow people to be angry and frustrated and upset and not condemn them as a result of it, um, but to understand uh, where they're at um, and to listen and to grow in our understanding and knowledge of each other, why people react the way they do, why people feel the way they do about what happened. And what is it about our system and our nation that's so broken that this keeps happening over and over and over again, right? Um, help us to be people of grace and mercy and love, Lord, in the midst of all of this. And to be a church that reflects that, not just to each other, but to the UW campus and to the students around. Because when we start doing that, when we show that we're a people of peace, a people of humility, and a people of unity, I think that is a huge testimony for many of the students here on campus. I don't have any announcements today. Just thank you for everyone who helped make this happen. Doug, thank you very much. You got an announcement, Matt? Uh, a prayer. Okay. Go ahead and give it. No, I, was, I don't want to end it. You pray. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, from Isaiah 61. And so, based, or just following Peter's message and um, what Lori and Nicole just prayed and shared with us. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Lord, that your spirit would be on us, each one of us individually, not just generically the church, but that the spirit of the Lord would be, would be on me and you and you, each one of you, that your spirit, Lord, would be upon us. Lord, that you would anoint us to share good tidings, you would share, help us, Lord, anoint us to share good news with those that are poor. Lord, that you would help us to be instruments that bring healing to people who are brokenhearted. Lord, that your spirit would anoint us to be those that help bring liberty to those in captivity. Lord, to open prisons that those who are bound and stuck can get out. Lord, to be instruments of your favor. Lord, we recognize that like David, we do not have the power nor the resources within ourselves to do these things, but it is Christ that is in us. He is the hope of glory. He is the hope for every broken-hearted and hurt and bound person that we encounter. Amen.